welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 54, The Rise of the Empire. By the 1890s, Japan had come a long way from the start to the Meiji Restoration. The feudal social structure had been cast aside after centuries, the economy was industrializing at a rapid pace, and the nation's political system was lurching slowly towards a representative government. But for all their achievements, the Japanese leaders were terribly uneasy about their homeland's place in the world. The West had been successfully overcome, and the nation wasn't in immediate danger of being colonized. Immediately outside Japan was a whole other story, though. All through the rest of East Asia, kingdoms and princedoms were being first subverted and then consumed by the Western empires. Aside from Japan, by 1890, only China, Korea, and Siam were still independent, and they were being sized up hungrily by the Europeans. Japan's reforms may have kept foreign empires at bay, but there was no guarantee it would be a permanent protection. As a response to this dilemma, Japan started looking towards territorial acquisitions outside the home islands to act as a buffer to the West, and as areas that Japan could economically exploit for itself. After all, the Europeans had made it abundantly clear that power politics were the order of the day, and to survive, Japan had to join in the global competition. What the Japanese leaders didn't realize was that there wasn't going to be any end to the expansion once it got going. Taking one hill simply meant that to secure that conquest, the next hill over had to be taken as well, until Japan finally got itself into some real trouble in the 30s and 40s. The process of expansion was already well underway before the 1890s, albeit on a modest scale. It was during the first two decades of the Meiji era that colonization efforts on the northern home island of Hokkaido were intensified, and the surrounding Kuril, Ryoku, and Bonin Island chains were secured, with the latter two containing the notable islands of Okinawa and Iwo Jima, respectively. The efforts didn't really raise many eyebrows in the world, as these areas were within the Japanese cultural sphere and weren't of interest to the West. It did, though, provide the first instances of Japan putting up the private property fence and really asserting itself. And in the case of Hokkaido, there was the little matter of the non-Japanese minority, known as the Ainu. They could be seen as patient zero for Japan's imperial excesses. They are an East Asian people originating from further north, in areas that are now part of the Russian Far East. Hokkaido, though, became their principal area of settlement. And while Japan was feudal and divided, they lived quietly apart from their neighbors. The coming of the Meiji era, though, saw Japan embark on their campaign of centralization that included Hokkaido. The Ainu lands were confiscated and put in the hands of Japanese colonists, and the Ainu themselves were reduced to hired hands or factory workers, a lower class within their own homeland. Laws were passed to restrict their language and customs, while forcing a modern Japanese education on them. The Japanese claimed they were simply bringing civilization to the Ainu, wanted to bring them into the modern world, which sounds terrifyingly similar to what the Europeans said about their conquered peoples. Ainu women were married to incoming Japanese men to literally breed them out of existence. The Ainu were not a numerous people, and by 1908 they numbered just 18,000 in Hokkaido, compared to 1.45 million Japanese living there. So there really wasn't any hope of resistance. And while their small numbers were what allowed such a complete suppression, and such campaigns couldn't be replicated in more 
populous lands elsewhere, it amply demonstrates the mindset of the Japanese when dealing with their new frontiers. But the fringes of the home islands weren't going to do as a buffer against the world. No, the Japanese had to go further afield to gain the security they so desired. The closest target on hand was Korea. That kingdom was a tributary of the Qing dynasty that ruled over China. And while technically a vassal, they had a lot of leeway over their internal affairs, which were dominated by a clique of conservative leaders who had rejected westernization. That same leadership you might remember from episode 52 also caused a diplomatic kerfuffle by refusing to recognize the Japanese emperor's special status, and causing the Meiji government to fracture over whether to invade that country in 1873. The winning side in that argument held that internal development had to come before foreign adventures. Well, internal development had been taken care of, so now they were going to get to do the foreign adventures. Japan started nurturing contacts within Korea that favored closer relations between the two countries, which led to the pro-Japan faction attempting a coup in December 1884. The coup quickly failed and anti-Japanese sentiment popped off in Korea. As that nation's benefactor, the Chinese also got involved. Ito Hirobumi, at the time serving as prime minister while also putting together the Meiji constitution, approached the Chinese with a deal. Japan wouldn't post troops to Korea and would respect its neutrality if China were to do the same. Not having any military ambitions in the peninsula and seeing the matter settled as a win, the Chinese agreed. Unfortunately, the agreement didn't bring a permanent peace. Korea slipped further into chaos and anti-Japanese agitation as its central government lost control and a peasant uprising marched on Seoul in 1894. The Korean king requested aid from China, which sent in 3,000 troops to protect their vassal monarch from his own subjects. This technically broke the agreement with Japan, as there were now Chinese troops stationed in Korea, and the Japanese pounced. In spring 1894, an expeditionary force was sent over, and predictably a skirmish between them and the Chinese troops broke out. In August, Japan declared war on China. This was a huge step, as China was still seen as the irresistible force among East Asian nations. Most everybody expected China to handily overcome the upstart islanders. It didn't work out that way. On September 16, 1894, the Japanese had advanced past Seoul and defeated the Chinese army in Pyongyang, driving them from Korea. The next day, the Japanese navy intercepted and crushed a Chinese fleet off the Korean coast where the Yalu River met the sea. After a break to rest and regroup, the Japanese went on the move again, crossing the Yalu River on October 24th and entering China. All of a sudden, people that the Chinese considered to be pirate barbarians from the edge of the world were invading the Middle Kingdom for the first time. The Japanese advanced into Manchuria, crushing any resistance they encountered. In January 1895, they made a seaborne attack on the Shandong Peninsula, with the objective of taking the Chinese naval base Avoy Haiwi. The combined land and naval attack was a complete success, with the Chinese defenses overcome and its navy shattered again, this time so badly its commanding admiral committed suicide. At that point, Ito was able to receive Chinese representatives as a clear victor. At the peace table, he was able to secure the Leodong Peninsula just north of Korea, which held the strategic city of Port Arthur, the island of Formosa, which is modern Taiwan, a war indemnity, 
and a pile of economic concessions. Plus, Korea was definitely going to be in the Japanese sphere of influence. He would have secured more, but a member of the Japanese staff went into a berserk rage and shot the leading Chinese representative in the face. It wasn't fatal, but it did shame Ito into lowering his initial demands, which were worse. Still, the war was a rousing success. Japan was a real imperialist power now, and fatefully its population was all for it. The public were elated by the stories of easy victories and conquests, and like their counterparts in the West, saw the win as an adventure to be proud of. It also sowed the seeds of some very ugly prejudices, as the Chinese people were held up to be weak and inferior. How could a nation so much bigger be pushed around like that? The average person concluded that Japan must be superior. These feelings would fester and only get worse in the decades until Japan's next invasion of China. There was, however, a little problem with the advance into northern China. That area had already been kind of staked out by the Russian Empire, who were not having this new and unexpected competition on its most distant doorstep. The Tsar called up his cousin, the German Kaiser, and his allies in France, and the three approached Japan and recommended threateningly that the Liaodong Peninsula be given back to China. Recognizing a threat when he saw one, Ito agreed and handed it back less than a month after securing it. Public opinion did not take it well, and public outcry against the hypocritical Westerners was fierce. Then the Russians, now fully aware of the danger the Japanese posed to their own interests, went a step further. They deployed 50,000 troops to Manchuria, ostensibly to guard the region during the Boxer Rebellion in China, but the troops remained once that crisis had passed. They also approached the Koreans and offered their protection against the Japanese, which the Koreans gleefully accepted. From 1896, a unit of Russian Marines protected the king in Seoul, and Russian business interests started expanding in that country. The Japanese responded with an even bigger arms buildup, this time aimed to bring the Russians down a peg. That buildup turned into a decade-long process. All the while, Japan did its best to compete with Russian influence in Korea. During those years, the Japanese tried to come to an arrangement with the Russians, recognizing their supremacy in Manchuria if they would leave Korea to Japan. The Russians, completely sure of themselves, declined to entertain the notion of a detente with Japan. They didn't care to treat with an Asian power as an equal, and were simply going to take everything. The arrogance of the Russians was not missed by the Japanese people, who gorged themselves on news reports sensationalizing the new foreign threat and how Japan had to fight for its national interests, which were now definitely tied with overseas possessions. Under pressure at home to settle the tensions by force and rebuffed by the Russians in trying to work out a face-saving measure, the government was steadily backed into a corner. In 1902, they managed to secure an alliance with Great Britain, which meant the other European power most capable of striking at them had been turned into an ally. By the start of 1904, the government had concluded that negotiating with the Russians was no longer viable, and on February 6th, severed relations with them. On the 8th, the Japanese Navy launched a surprise attack on Russian ships in Port Arthur, and afterwards declared war. Japan kinda had a thing for surprise naval attacks to open a war. And while the attack only damaged some of Russia's capital ships, it threw them into such disarray that the fleet holed up in port and gave the Japanese free reign at sea. 
the Japanese followed this up by launching seaborne attacks all across the Yellow Sea, with the main field of action in the first phase of the war once again being the Liaodong Peninsula. There, the Russian army was holed up in Port Arthur. The fighting was a precursor to World War I, as both sides broke out the heavy artillery and machine guns. The Japanese suffered 25,000 casualties alone taking a pair of fortified hills, and 56,000 on the peninsula overall between March and December 1904. Despite the horrendous cost in lives, the resolve of the Japanese did not waver, and Russia attempts to relieve the port failed to break through from the north. On January 2, 1905, the Russian commander surrendered the garrison. This opened the way for the Japanese to turn northward, and a quarter million soldiers advanced on the city of Mukden, modern-day Shenyang, and the key city of southern Manchuria. There, over 300,000 Russians waited for them. In an 18-day battle starting on February 20th, the forces engaged each other. Despite being the smaller force, the Japanese held the initiative and maneuvered around the Russian army's flanks. Realizing that their center was in danger of being encircled, the Russians gave up the battle and retreated, having endured tens of thousands of casualties. While the Japanese could not decisively destroy the opposing army, the Russians were utterly demoralized by the result of the battle. They were the first modern Europeans to meet an Asian army on such a large field of battle and lose. And not just lose, but be forced to the brink of their army disintegrating. The Russians would remain in Manchuria, as the Japanese lacked the strength to properly invade such a huge area, but they were wholly incapable of taking the offensive. The war settled into a stalemate. That is, until the Russian Baltic fleet showed up. The Russian Pacific fleet had earlier in the war proven incapable of defeating its Japanese counterpart. So, the Tsar had the big-brained idea of sailing his Baltic fleet 18,000 miles in one voyage through the Atlantic, Indian, and Pacific Oceans. Since the British and Russians were still on the outs at the time, they couldn't even use the Suez Canal as a shortcut and had to go around Africa instead. Predictably, this many miles put a terrible strain on the Russian ships. By the time they were in Northeast Asia, they were in god-awful shape and in no condition to fight a major battle. Which, to be fair to the Russian commander, they weren't intending on fighting one just yet and wanted to make it to Vladivostok where they could do an overhaul before forcing a confrontation with the Japanese. That plan depended on not being spotted in Japanese waters, which is, of course, exactly what happened. On May 27th, the Battle of the Tsushima Strait began. Caught off guard, the Russians were annihilated over the course of two days. 34 ships were sunk, captured, or scuttled by their crews to avoid capture, which included 11 battleships. Even more so than the land defeats, this was a shattering loss to the Russians, and finally convinced their czar that the war could not be won. A stunned Russia dispatched a peace delegation to meet with the Japanese in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Negotiations would be mediated by U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt, whose nation also held a deep interest in the Pacific and was also grappling with how to handle the new power that had risen in the East. The humiliation of the Triple Intervention after the Sino-Japanese War was reversed, and then some. The Liaodong Peninsula was transferred to Japanese control. The Russians had held it on a lease from the Chinese, which now went to Japan. It wasn't exactly an annexation, but the area would fall under Japanese rule from then up to 1945. Korea would also fall into the Japanese sphere of influence, as did southern Manchuria. 
Finally, the southern part of the island of Sakhalin, north of Hokkaido and east of the Russian mainland, was confirmed as a Japanese possession. And while it was a great victory, the Japanese people were deeply unhappy with the terms. Over 100,000 soldiers were dead, and the state was deeply in debt over the conflict. Given the scale of their victories, they had assumed that Japan would also gain conquests in the Russian Far East, with their reach penetrating deep into Siberia, which would eventually become a to-do on Japan's imperial checklist, but was deeply unrealistic at that time. The public outcry against the peace treaty was indicative that the national mood was very expansionistic and supportive of the military, something that Japan's generals and admirals definitely took note of approvingly. For Korea, the war was a catastrophe. With Russia gone, there was no longer any empire in the area they could turn to as a patron against the Japanese. In November 1905, Ito saw to Korea being turned into a protectorate, with Japan in control of that nation's foreign affairs, and with Japanese troops being stationed there. In July 1907, the Korean king was deposed and effective governance transferred to the Japanese. And in August of that year, the Korean army was disbanded. Korea was open to colonization, and by 1908, there were 125,000 Japanese living in the country. Many were businessmen and bureaucrats, but there was also a migration of farmers to Korea as well something encouraged by the government to help feed Japan's growing cities. Industries, too, were invested in, and within just a few years, Korea was a part of Japan's commercial network. The Koreans, for their part, did not take all this lying down, and started to resist the Japanese. This took many forms, from passive resistance to more extreme cases like several public officials committing suicide rather than collaborate. I mentioned in 1907 the Korean army was disbanded, the modern listener might recall the example of the Iraqi army being disbanded following the first phase of the Iraq War as being the catalyst for the insurgency there. Unemployed and patriotic soldiers being inclined to continue their trade against foreign occupation and all that. Well, the same thing happened here. An uprising began, with the nucleus being a whole slew of ex-soldiers, and the Japanese were forced to send in their army. 18,000 Koreans and 7,000 Japanese would die in that struggle. Among them was Ito himself. The multi-time prime minister and architect of the modern Japanese government was assassinated in the Manchurian city of Harbin by a Korean patriot. His death was the catalyst that prompted the Japanese government to formally annex Korea in August 1910, with a hardline general, Taruchi Masataki, becoming its first governor-general, and in effect, Korea's dictator. Korea would go on to endure decades of oppression as rights were stripped, and their nation mercilessly exploited. Schools were taken over to teach a Japanese-approved curriculum, local Korean newspapers were banned, political expression became forbidden. Japanese were recruited and sent over to act as police forces across Korea. These policies were replicated in Formosa, as well as South Sakhalin, where the local Ainu population started suffering the same fate as their kin in Hokkaido. Global public opinion began to sour over word of the excesses coming out of East Asia. And even Britain, Japan's recent treaty ally, was growing concerned about competition over influence in China. Japan had scored two major victories and assembled a respectable empire in just under two decades. But in doing so, they had entered into the calculations of their neighbors. Not just the Europeans, but the Americans and even the Australians and New Zealanders, far to the south, 
turned a wary eye towards Japan. Future expansion would have to be done under a much more watchful global eye. And this is where, to borrow a phrase, more colonies bring more problems. One reason to expand abroad was to open new avenues of economic exploitation. But almost as importantly, if not more so, was the idea that foreign lands had to be conquered in order to establish that all-important buffer and keep those foreign powers away from the home islands. Which, hey, mission accomplished, right? Yes and no. The home islands weren't under threat, but those useful buffers might be, and themselves had to be protected. And as the conquests became more integrated, a lot of leaders started forgetting they were buffers and considered them integral components of the empire. The locals who actually lived there weren't all of a sudden valuable citizens of the conquerors, but their resources and labor were certainly valued. And once the first wave of prizes became integrated, it was not going to be long before the next set of lands adjacent to them became targets. And remember that the armed forces didn't report to the civilian government, not even the appointed prime minister and cabinet. They reported to the emperor alone. So the fact that military men like Tarochi took the lead in governing places like Korea, meant that the armed forces had quite a bit of pull even from this early time, especially outside the home islands. Entire factions within the military would form within the occupation forces sent abroad, and many looked just across their frontiers and conjured fresh threats that had to be challenged, which was going to be an issue in the future. And if there was one thing that drove the ambitions of the army officers wild, it was having a disorganized and weak China just sitting right there. Japan had already beaten the Qing dynasty handily, and after 1912, that empire had fallen apart and was immediately replaced by regional warlords and a weak central government that we will all come to know and love in the next series. As it turned out, Western fears of Japanese expansion in that direction were well-founded. Not only militarists in the army and government looked there for easy wins, but many average Japanese looked in that direction for easy glory and material gains themselves. That fact is especially important, as the Japanese media knew that exciting stories of expansion sold well to a very patriotic audience, and that's exactly what they gave them, which in turn just fueled more dreams of expansion, which kind of created the feedback loop of a kind. As China began to enter its warlord phase, Japan would eagerly get involved in affairs within that nation. Usually, this was to secure influence and economic benefits, but in some cases, uh, warlords were built up as military proxies. And in every case, the exercise of soft power in China was always meant to divide that nation in order to allow it to fall to Japanese domination piece by piece. Turning further afield, the final acquisition of the pre-30s empire was far distant from the lands that Japan had been fighting in. During the late 1800s, the German Empire had claimed the Caroline Islands in the Central Pacific, which ran east of the Philippines in a 2,200-mile chain. Upon the outbreak of World War I, the Japanese joined in with the Entente and seized the islands from the Germans. Up to this point, the wars Japan had fought were done with a feeling of great pressure on the country. If they had failed to overcome the Chinese or Russians, they would have lost out on prospects of future acquisitions. This, in contrast, was an opportunistic land grab. The islands were only lightly defended and were the easiest conquest yet. But the sudden expansion that far south set off alarm bells among their neighbors, and when they were awarded as a League of Nations mandate territory afterwards, 
A condition of Japanese governance was that they could not be developed for military purposes. While that was honored until the 1930s, the islands proved to be crucial bases from which the Japanese would strike in 1941 and 42. If you've ever seen a map of Japanese conquests in World War II and wonder just how the hell they expanded outwards in such a vast stretch of ocean in basically six months, it's these islands that gave them the reach. So while they weren't a big land area, uh, having a place to stop over was valuable in and of itself. The islands technically weren't annexed by Japan up front, but from the start, they were treated much the same as the rest of the empire. And while the small local communities weren't as oppressed at the same level as, say, the Koreans, they had little say in how they were governed. Japan also attempted to make a play for the Chinese city of Qingdao. That port had been occupied by the Germans previously, and was taken by the Japanese after a brief siege. You already know how that turned out if you remember way back in episode 3. Uh, Japan held on to the port and the interests in the Shandong province in the face of fierce Chinese protests and international ambivalence, before eventually returning it in 1922. The main result of that temporary stay being to infuriate the Chinese and poison relations with the nationalists there, and after returning it, infuriating the Japanese public, who felt that giving it up was a sign of unacceptable weakness. Which was all kind of the price of going on a foreign adventure with no real long-term plan before trying to smash and grab as much as you can. And okay, that's the, uh, that's the Japanese empire in its first phase. It wasn't a very old empire, and unlike the western ones, was a result of government policy. Whereas in the West, conquests were driven by economic interests spreading into a region and then demanding protection and favorable government regulation, the Japanese focused on the expansion first, and economic exploitation on a large scale was saved for when the dust had settled. And in understanding the initial drive for security in East Asia, which in turn sparked the nation's militarism, which in turn mobilized the nation to support foreign adventures, you begin to see how Japan's actions in the future started to take shape. With the empire established, we'll next get into how modern Japan evolved with the additions. Next week, we'll close out the Meiji era and change the guard over to the Taisho Emperor at a time of relative calm for Japan. I'll see you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.